Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. We're along with my partners, Ann and Crystal. We do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. People try to put us down. Talking about my generation, with apologies to Pete. So there are about 77 million baby boomers in the U.S., me included, making it significantly larger than the generations immediately before and after. 10,000 of us are reaching what we used to call the retirement age, 65, every single day, according to AARP. That's seven boomers turning 65 every minute. Boomers are projected to have 70% of all disposable income over the next 10 years. Yet, sadly, most boomers are not well prepared for retirement. And of course, there's the whole Social Security and Medicare debates funding issues. Fortunately, PBS in 2011 set up Next Avenue, the only national journalism service for America's booming older population, on the job 24-7 with content on vital ideas, context, and perspectives on issues that matter most as we age. And lucky for you today, we have the managing editor with us in studio, Richard Eisenberg. Now, Richard's also the editor of the site's Money and Work and Purpose channels, a regular blogger, and one of the founders. I've known Richard since his days as executive editor of Money Magazine, front page editor of Yahoo Finance, and various other publications, as well as writing two very important books, How to Avoid a Midlife Financial Crisis and The Money Book of Personal Finance. And Richard also happens to live in my hometown of Westfield, New Jersey. So welcome back to Financially Speaking, Richard. The last time you appeared, this was a syndicated radio show in the 90s, but technology's changed. And here we are in 2019 in the wonderful world of podcasts. Well, thank you, Mitch. It's great to be back. Yeah, it really is. So you were a busy guy the last time I talked to you, and you're, you're still a busy guy now. So why don't we start with Next Avenue and, sure. and what, what you feel that is the mission and, and the audience? So what we're trying to do is help people in their 50s and 60s navigate their lives. And so that's about money and work. Those are the two channels that I'm in charge of, as you mentioned. We also have a channel about health. We have a channel about caregiving. We have a channel about technology. We have a channel about living. You know, when we started our site in uh, 2011, 2012, uh, we were all about baby boomers because those were the people in the 50s and 60s. Now in 2019, we're also talking to people in Gen X because some of them have uh, crossed the age 50 threshold. So we're talking to boomers and Gen Xers, and we're trying to be as useful as we can, uh, publishing news stories every day. So what do you do as editor of the different channels? I'd love to hear more about you know money, work, and actually one of my favorite words, purpose. But we'll talk about the money side first. Sure. So the money channel is the personal finance channel, and that's a lot about Retirement planning, you know, some of our readers are not yet retired, some of them are retired, and so we're giving them advice in both respects. We're also talking about taxes, we're talking about debt, sometimes we're talking about their millennial children uh, and paying for college, sometimes we're talking about their um, older parents and long-term care costs and and issues that uh, revolve around money and Medicare, things like that. So that's the money channel. Uh, How about work? So the work and purpose channel is a combination of things. The work part is about finding a job, whether it's full-time or part-time, 
working in retirement, starting your own business, Encore Careers. Uh, and the purpose part is about volunteering, uh, finding meaning and purpose through the work that you do or outside of work. And so it's a combination of both of those. And purpose is a big deal, especially for not so much the baby boomers in their early 50s, but as we get a little bit older, you know, finding purpose, you know, in our 60s and and 70s, as I'm told, you know, is a big deal. So I think that's really, you know, a critical issue. Yeah, I think that's true. I think a a lot of us as we get older think to ourselves, well, what, what am I doing that's being helpful to our communities, to our towns, to our states, to the country, to other people? And how can I be more helpful? And sometimes that's volunteering. Sometimes it's finding a job where you feel like you're really making a difference. Mm So there, there's so many great stories I've read and shared in Next Avenue over the over the last few years. But let's start with this great series you did recently called The Blue Zones, mm-hmm. which, if I'm correct, are the five places in the world where people are living longer and healthier lives, right. which I think everybody wants to hear more about. So where are they and where can I book a flight now? <laughs> <laughs> well, the closest one is in the United States. It's in California, actually. It's in Loma Linda, California, which is about 60 miles east of Los Angeles. I spent some time there for the series that I was doing. But the other ones are a little bit farther away. There's one in Japan, there's one in Greece, there's one in Italy, and there's another one that I went to in Costa Rica. These are all places where people live the longest lives around the world and stay healthy when they're doing it. So they have a lot of centenarians, also a lot of people in their 80s and their 90s. And most of the stories and the books that I've read about the Blue Zones focus on diet, nutrition, and exercise. So how do they stay so healthy, which is great. But I'm the money and the work editor. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to know how do people who live that long make their money last so long? Right. Are they worried about that? And then what can we as Americans learn from them? And what can America, the country, learn from them? And I found some pretty big differences. So let's talk about that a little bit. You know, financially, obviously, and you know, we we know what we know what it is here. We know all about Social Security and Medicare and all the problems that we have. But you know, you're, you're talking about four uniquely different you know, environments and countries. So is it the cost of living is so much less? What, what, what's, what's, hel- what's helping them have their money last? Well, part of it is the cost of living. Those are all places that are cost less than the United States, um, putting Loma Linda aside for a moment. But a lot of the way the people in these other four places are able to make their money last so long is, well, there are a few things. One is they live in countries that have uh, universal health care provided by the government, so they're not worried about health care costs. Now, they happen to be healthy often, so they don't have major health care costs, but they do have costs, and they are not having to pay for themselves typically. That's one thing. And the other thing is they, in most of these places, they're very dependent on their families for helping take care of them. And it's it's not considered an obligation. It's just considered part of life. And right. So, it's culture. It's the culture. It's exactly. Certainly in Japanese, for example. I mean, that's just the culture. It's yeah. The way it's been. And sometimes it's the children or grandchildren who live with them. Sometimes they live nearby. Sometimes they just stop by or they send money. Um, so I think these older people know that if things, if they're in a pinch, they can count on their family to help them out. And often they get a small government pension. Mostly they're not uh, getting uh, pensions from work. And one of the things that surprised me uh, in all these places, except for the United States, most of these people are not saving and investing and have not done that by and large. Some of them put money in the bank. 
Mostly they don't. And I, I, I just thought that they would be doing that all over. Now, in the United States, in Loma Linda, it was the exact opposite. Not only do they save and invest for the retirement, but because these tend to be uh, – these are Seventh-day Adventists, by and large, in mm-hmm. Loma Linda, which is why is they Loma live Linda so Loma Linda in Orange County, or is it um, – No, it's, it's east of it's the, eastern, in okay. the Upland area, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but because there's so many Seventh-day Adventists, these are people who typically don't drink, they don't smoke, they eat very healthy lives, they exercise, they, they, they're very fit. And so they know when they're in their 20s and 30s that there's a pretty good chance they're going to live to their 80s or 90s. So they start saving early and regularly every year because they know what is ahead for them. And that's different than a lot of other Americans who say, well, I'll, I'll get around to it when I can. And, and sometimes that day never comes. Another guest that was on the show recently, Diane Sanfilippo, who's written a number of books on health and nutrition. She wrote a bestseller on on, on the paleo diet and and keto. And she talked about the S word, stress, Hmm. and how at the end of the day, that's that's just as critical as everything else. I, I would imagine that's probably only why you found one, you know, one city in the United States that fits into these blue zones. Mm-hmm. So how how are the people handling stress there and, and, and any anything you noticed in, in any of the other countries that you went? Well, you know, they were not very stressed when I met them in Loma Linda, California. Now, these it tends to be, I would say, a middle class to affluent community. Many of them are very religious. They have a lot of friends. Many of them keep working into their 70s and 80s, though not all of them do. But they really rely on each other. Sometimes that's spiritually through the church. Sometimes it's just through friendship. And I never heard anybody saying that they were stressed. That just wasn't in their vocabulary. Hmm. And in the other four countries around the now, world— no, this, it's, yeah. not, it's not a commune. It's not no, like, not at you know, all. I'm picturing the Manson Ranch here. No, but no, no, no. no, okay, no. Okay. They live in houses. And okay. <laughs> you would, if you drove through Loma Linda, as I did when I got mm-hmm. there— from New Jersey, uh, you wouldn't know there was anything special about the area. But once you start talking to people, you realize there is something special about the way they think and the way they live. In the other four uh, countries, the other four blue zones around the world, those are all also very low stress. Now, it's not to say that the people there don't work hard. They do. And they do have you know people counting on them and they've got bills to pay like everybody else. But they they don't let that get to them. They don't lose sleep at night over anything, pretty much. They... They live life to the fullest as much as they can. In, in Costa Rica, they talk about pure, pure vida. And and that's true in, in, the, in Okinawa, Japan. It was true in Sardinia. It was true in Ikaria, Greece. Stress is just not part of who they are. God, that sounds great. <laughs> I mean, I feel like stress is just just part of our culture every single day. It is. I mean, you know, whether, you know, doesn't matter what the topic is. I mean, I'm a New York Mets fan, and I was stressed last night mm-hmm. watching my pitcher almost throw a perfect game before the rains came. So, I mean, it's, just, it's ridiculous stress, but it's, yeah. it's, it's enough stress that's out there. So, you know, you wrote in these stories about how older people in these spots make their money last, mm-hmm. and you talked a little bit about what they do around the world, and you mentioned in California, but let's talk a little bit more about that. So are they, is it they're just spending less? Is it, you know, they're just not building up debt? Those those are all part of it. I would say they are careful with how they spend money. I, I wouldn't say they're exceedingly frugal, but I think they're careful. I do think that they try to avoid debt as much as possible, and they really take saving for the future seriously. And, and I do think that 
being healthy, staying healthy, it keeps their health costs down mm -hmm. so they don't have to worry as much as some of the rest of us do about medical bills because they don't have as many of them and they're often not as high even though they live in California, which is not a cheap place to live. So I think part of the way they live allows them to spend less money on things that people might otherwise be spending money on. So... Do you think it's possible to clone what's happening in Loma Linda around America? I mean, we have so many, you know, so many long-term care health issues that people are dealing with. You know, obviously obesity is one. I'm not even going to get into drugs or anything along those lines but and, and diseases. But what can you learn from, from that? Well, there are a few things, I think. One is... The idea of saving and investing diligently, regularly, as early as you can get started right. and then continuously, that's important. Trying to stay as healthy as possible is important for not only for your physical health, but for your mental health and for your the your spending costs. Mm -hmm. So that's important. Friendship and community and bonding seem to be very important to the happiness of the people in Loma Linda. And that was true in the other four places, too. So I would say... Was it religious in all five places? Part, or, no, or, no. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not even talking about necessarily religion in Loma Linda, although mm -hmm. that was part of it. But they had a lot of friends regardless of being religious or not. And so... And, and that was true in the other four places as well. They, in, in some of these places, like in, in Okinawa, Japan, the older people in the community get together every day and just sit around and gab or play games or just mm -hmm. enjoy each other's company. Right. And, and, you know, social isolation is a big problem for older people in America and I think can make people unhappy and also unhealthy. And, so I, and, and that can then spiral into financial uh, effects as well. Well, we're definitely going to link to a number of things, uh, folks, from from Next Avenue. But this particular series, you, you have to read. I, I think it'd be actually even more interesting, maybe, to take that to a next level and you know produce some kind of a documentary. It's fascinating, really, really fascinating. So, really, the reason we're sitting here today is a few weeks ago, I was reading a piece in Next Avenue by Chris Farrell that I thought was just really, really upsetting. It deals with America's hidden retirement crisis, the debt. Of older Americans. I mean, this was this was incredibly shocking for someone who is a financial advisor for a living. I don't see that much of this, but obviously it's a big problem. And you know, I'd love to talk about that. And, and, and can it be solved? Well, I really do think it is the hidden retirement crisis. We don't hear much about it. We hear a lot about people not saving enough for retirement, and that's certainly true. But what we don't hear about, well, let me just mention a couple of statistics that were in Chris's story. He wrote that the median total consumer debt of households headed by someone 65 or older in 2016, which was about $31,000, that was two and a half times what it was in 2001 and about four and a half times what it was in 1989. Hmm. He also mentioned that 60%, 60% of six people over 65 carried debt in 2016. That's much more than 42% in 1992. And we're talking about credit card debt and sometimes student loan debt, but often mortgage debt. A lot of people these days either are taking out mortgages in retirement or continuing to pay them at a time when you would think they could least afford to have that albatross around their neck because they don't have often regular income coming in other than Social Security. And if they're lucky, maybe a pension. And yet the idea of having to pay this extra, extra interest is just, you know, frightening to me. And and I'm hoping that more people will start realizing that maybe this is something I've got to do something about. Well, it's, I'm glad you mentioned the student debt issue because that's something we, we delve into a lot on this show and it's something that bothers me a lot. And I was shocked when I did some research recently about how many people 
are having money pulled from their social security checks because they owe student debt. Uh, it might have been for their kids' education, might not have been for their own education. Either way. But that's really scary. Absolutely. And it's only going to get worse in coming years because the cost of college is only going up and up and up. And right. no, people just are taking out student loans because that's the only way they can afford to pay for and it. And I would imagine the extra stress load can, can't be healthy for, no. for everybody. It's, no. I, I'm reading a great book about that right now called Indebted, and it's all about what rising college costs are doing to families financially and emotionally. It's really amazing and sad. Well, it is. And, you know, we've seen, I think it's like a 500% increase in, in, in student debt in the last 10 years. We are at the point where the Great Recession in 2008 was brought down through the housing crisis, and it was somewhere about 6 to 7% of GDP. And we're approaching 3% of GDP with student loan debt. And it's not getting any better. The universities aren't doing anything. The government certainly isn't doing anything. They're, they're playing a shell game and they're winning. From your experience as a, as a business writer, just to go off, off target a little bit here, I know there's sort of uh, one of my clients, Gary Vaynerchuk, talks a lot about if you're going to be an entrepreneur, I'd rather see you work two jobs than go to college, you know, and, or, or maybe just go to community college. I can understand going to college, obviously, if you need a degree in business or you need a degree in law or, or medicine or certainly like that. But where, 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 do you, where do you think the future is heading with that? Because you're... There's so many people that want the, you know, the, the big name school. Um, but at the end of the day, I have to tell you, I know in our town, a number of uh, kids that went to Harvard, they're out of work. Mm -hmm. So, right. Well, it's so and have a lot of debt. Yeah, absolutely. You know, going to college and going to prestigious college is no longer a guarantee of anything. And so I think, and of course, the cost is only getting higher. And so I think for a lot of parents and their kids, they are starting to you know, question that and saying to themselves, well, do I, does the child really need to go to college? Do they need to go to the most expensive colleges? You know, what's the payoff here? And that's why I think we're going to see more kids and families think about you know, taking, going to trades and going to community college mm -hmm. rather than going to a four-year college. I still think for many people, a four-year college is, is going to be the way they're going to go, but they may choose ones that are less expensive than they might have in the past because it's just gotten to the point where it's just unbearable. Right, and we need tradesmen. Yeah, and absolutely. tradeswomen. I mean, you know, there's just, you know, electricians, plumbers of the world are all doing extremely well. Right, they didn't necessarily need. They got their specific trade education, and, and we've we've gotten away from that now. Another thing I know you're worried about, and, and I am too, as a parent of millennials and maybe one Gen Zer. But hmm. you know, what's what's up for the future of the of our kids? What keeps you up at night about that? Well, I'm worried that they may be facing their own retirement crisis, but one that's very different than the boomer and the Gen Xers. And what concerns me is there are a lot of millennials and Gen Z who are self-employed and either by choice or not, but so they are, they're on their own. And which is great and fine, except for the fact that that means that they don't have an employer that offers a 401k plan. And so it's up to them to save for retirement. And for most people who do not have an employer-sponsored retirement savings plan, very few of them actually have the discipline or sometimes even the knowledge to go about and saving money in an IRA or a solo 401k on their own. And so my fear is that the people who are today in their 20s and 30s 
are not going to be saving for retirement because there's nobody telling them to or helping them do it. Certainly there's no match for them. Right. And then they're going to get to a point where they're going to say, oh, I didn't save for retirement. Nobody, I didn't know how to do it. Or nobody told me about that. That's my worry. Mm-hmm. Well, that fits exactly into how I end every show by saying pay yourself first because nobody else is going to do it. And our generation is the last generation that had pensions, unless you're a teacher or a government worker or something like that or police or fire. So it's, it, is, it is very scary. So you had a story recently that I thought was real interesting. And I, if I, I actually went, I noticed it was pretty viral. It was all over the place. Mm-hmm. It was called, Sorry, Nobody Wants Your Parents' Stuff. Mm-hmm. Boy, that's an issue I think we all deal with. I'm dealing with that right now. I, my mom's in her 90s and living in the same house for 64 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're just accumulated a lot. We've, we've moved a lot out. But the majority of what's in there... I don't know what we're going to do with. So what's your take on this? It is a big problem, and it's going to be a bigger problem with every passing year. Uh, I wrote the story after my father passed away a few years ago. We were suddenly, my sister and I found that we had to do something about everything he had in his apartment. There wasn't a lot, but there was stuff, and it had to get moved out fast because the place that he lived in, independent living community, said basically we need to get somebody else in this apartment in the next 30 days. And so we started to try to figure out, well, what could we do? And the more we looked into it, the harder it became to find anybody who would want any of these, any of his things. And I'm talking about charities would say no. Right. And and there aren't antique stores the way there used to be. So there were mm-hmm. fewer places that you could go to find somebody who'd want it. So, you know, we ended up keeping some of it. We ended up having to junk some of it, which we didn't want to do. We were able to take a few pieces of, of art that they owned, not nothing valuable, but something, and went to a, an auction house and we were able to get find one buyer for one, but not for the other. So, you know, the answer is, it's something that families need to start thinking about and as early as possible. You know, one of the things I learned was that the generation under us, the millennials, typically don't want our stuff or our parents' stuff. Right. You know, they move around a lot. They prefer to get home furnishings from places like IKO or wherever that are inexpensive and they're going to replace them in a couple of years. They don't want your grand, their grandparents' dining room table set and their mm. break front. There's, right. no, there's no room for it. It's right. not stylish for them. They're not interested, and they're not going to be interested. We have to realize that and then plan for that. That's, that's very true. It's a big problem. A few weeks ago, I spoke with a really dynamic CEO whose company was just named one of the top 50 fastest uh, growing companies by Inc. Magazine, mm-hmm. Rachel Tipograph. And at the ripe age of 32, she's running a company called Micmac, which is kind of like Shopify. It's very much behind the scenes, and it's, it's kind of really crushing social e-commerce. She made a comment that over the next 10 years, 85% of people will demand that all their content for everything they do be on video, hmm. which obviously includes shopping, commerce, and, and of course, the news of the day. So as a, as a business journalist, are you, are you finding that you're putting more, more video on, online? Is that something that you think your readers want? You know, we do a little of that. Um, and, you know, as you say, we're a site from PBS, so you might think that we'd be all about video. Sure. You'd have a but, Ken Burns special exactly. running every five minutes. Right. <laughs> well, we're, we're happy to include video on our site, but we find that typically our readers prefer to get the information we have by reading it. Sometimes they print it out, sometimes they read it on their phone right. or on their computer. And so, you know, we'll do videos, but they often seem to tell us they want to read rather than watch. Now, I think 
With passing years, more people will gravitate more towards video than away from reading. But for our audience, people in their 50s and 60s right now, it's mostly reading more than watching. Yeah, no, I I would agree. It's definitely in the generation that you're talking to, people still actually read newspapers. And and, and if they are going to read, they'll read online. And like you said, they could print it out. So I'm certain we have some budding business journalists listening out there today. And with all the changes and clearly without getting into politics, money drives business and is at the core of every impactful global issue of the day. So what would be your advice to a high schooler that wants to be a journalist as well as college students looking to to break into this field? I would applaud the fact that they're interested. I'm always happy to hear of somebody who wants to become a journalist, but I would say it's a difficult and changing field right now. And I would say the more versatile you can be, the better off you will be. So in other words, when 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 I started back in the late 70s and the 80s, you know, the, the idea at that point was, OK, you're going to get a job at a newspaper or at a magazine or at a TV station. And you know the skills that are needed to do that job. These days, when you're starting out as a journalist, you really need to be able to be very versatile in video, in digital and in whether you call it print or just mm-hmm. You know, text. And so I would say the more you can say to an employer, I can do any of those things, the better, because they're probably going to want you to do all of those things and to be ready to move on a moment's notice on new stories that will come along. That said, I've found in my career, I've been doing this for a while. I really enjoyed the fact that I never know from day to day what I'm going to be doing, what I'm going to be writing about or editing about. And that's part of the joy of journalism. I don't think that's changed. And I think that's going to continue. Are the readers changed? I mean, you know, let's just talk. go back to your days at Money Magazine, mm. which, which you know, when I started in this industry in the late 80s was, was really the Bible. I mean, mm-hmm. there was really was something that, you know, like reading the Wall Street Journal, you needed to read Money Magazine if you wanted to know what your prospective clients or your clients are, are reading. Mm-hmm. Where, where's that gone? Well, there is no more Money Magazine. Right. There, there's a money.com website that still mm-hmm. exists, but the magazine doesn't. There used to be a Smart Money Magazine that doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. There's still Kiplinger's Magazine. Right. But the days of getting personal finance information in a magazine are mostly over. And people these days, I think, prefer to get almost all their content in almost any area online and immediately whenever they want to. And so in some ways, that's helpful because it is... When I worked at the magazine, it was a monthly. It, it was frustrating sometimes to know that you've written a story that people aren't going to get to see for a couple of weeks and, and it's going to be out there for a month or so. The idea that now you can pu- write something and publish it today and people can read it immediately and you know that it's as current as it possibly could, that's all wonderful. And that's just a different way of presenting it. It also means, though, that we don't have journalists, by and large, these days who are able to spend the time that we used to have at a magazine to spend two weeks researching and then writing a story and talking to a lot of sources. Now it's all about fastness and and how quickly can you get it done. So, you know, for our Next Avenue, we're trying to publish great content every day. We do. But I'm expecting that my writers are going to talk to maybe two or three people for an article of 800 to 1,000 words, as opposed to a Money Magazine story that might have been more like 3,000 words and 10 people. Hmm. It's just different. So the a lot of people seem to get their business news from CNBC. I've always had a pretty strong feeling about CNBC that it's an entertainment network. I've told as many people that will listen to mm-hmm. me that you just need to realize that. Mm-hmm. And Jim Cramer is an entertainer. Right. And I'm not picking on Jim uh, at all. I'm just saying that it's it's uniquely different. Do you think at the end of the day, CNBC helps or harms people? 
I think I think information is always helpful. So I'm glad that it exists that people can learn what the market did today and hear people prognosticate about what they why they think that happened and what they think is going to happen and to talk about you know why certain companies have some value and other ones don't and and the economics of public policy and that sort of thing uh, where i get concerned is the idea of people making financial decisions based on what one person says not knowing anything about you or your personal portfolio. And I worry sometimes that people say, oh, well, I heard somebody say that, so I'm going to buy it because he said it was a good stock to buy. I don't think that's the best way to invest. And I agree. <laughs> so I also saw a story recently, which uh, also will hit home eventually. Should you move near your grown children when you retire? Now, for me, I hope my kids stay local, but I could certainly see many advantages as our generation starts needing some help, not to mention, you know, the money matters to consider. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big topic. I mean, we can do an entire show just on this topic. But having researched this, I'd like to hear some of your thoughts. Yeah, well, it was a story I assigned because I feel like it's something a lot of people in their 50s and 60s are starting to think about and maybe they're even doing it because younger people are moving around a lot and often far away from where they grew up, not because they hate where they grew up, but they're looking for opportunities or just a different way of life. And for a lot of parents, including myself, the parents miss being near their children. And often the parents and the children have very good relationships, so the kids miss being near with their parents. They don't want to live with them necessarily, but they, they'd all like to see each other more. So I feel like in many cases, it is, a, it is something worth considering to move near your grown children, but you really have to think about, okay, well, what's it going to be like once I live there? You know, Am I really going to like that community? Does, is it going to have the offering the kinds of things that I want? Are my kids going to want me to be around them? And if I want to, you know, take care of their grandchildren, will they want that? So I just think there's a lot of things you want to think about and talk to your kids about before you make the move, because you just don't want to go across the country and then find out you hadn't really thought it through. Maybe rent before you buy? There's a thought, yeah. And and you know, often if you can, visit a place not on vacation, but just to spend a week or two there as though you live there and see what would it be like every day and not as a vacationer. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you've covered a great deal of business stories throughout your very successful career. What stories stand out to you, not only for their historical importance, but also any story that, that, that really kind of touched you deeply? Well, let's see. There was a story I did at Money Magazine. It was about what I called the Get Rich Gurus of TV. And this was at a time some of your podcast listeners may remember back in the 80s when if you turned on your television, particularly late at night, particularly on cable, you would see these people saying that we're going to make you a millionaire and it's really easy. And it was often through no money down real estate. And I was skeptical and I went to interview a bunch of these people and found out things like the guy standing on the yacht waving to everybody turned out he didn't own that yacht. He was renting it for the day when they were right, filming. Right, commercial. Yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. So and that was a fun story to do. And it helped people because people need to know that 95% of what they see on late night television, certainly back then, was was fake. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the and goal... fraud. Well, sometimes it was fraudulent, <laughs> yeah. but it was certainly the goal was for them to sell books and tapes, right. not necessarily to help you so much. So right. that was fun. I, I have to say the story you mentioned already, the one about nobody wants your parents stuff, it touched me as I was writing it because it was so personal, but it also touched me how much it resonated with our audience at Next Avenue. We heard from so many readers saying things like, I'm going through that, or I'm worried about going through that, or here's what I did. And they offered so many great ideas that we published a story after mine saying, here's what our readers said about that, and here are their ideas, because maybe they can help you. Mm -hmm. And you learn a lot from your readers. And I, I, I'd be curious what 
what some of the requests are that, that you, you get at Next Avenue to write more about or what, what stories seem to resonate the most? We hear a lot from people about how do I get a job when I'm in my 50s and 60s when there's so much age discrimination. Great you know, question. They, they say, you know, I've got skills, I'm interested and willing to work, I have the energy, I just can't get an interview. I send my resume out there or I do whatever I need to do and I just don't hear back. And they're frustrated and, re- and rightly so. Now, what's interesting is right now that seems to be changing a little bit because of the hot job market because employers are so desperate – for people to work for them, they are now hiring people in their 50s and 60s or keeping them on in a way they hadn't in a few years ago because they need them more. I would like to believe that's a long-term trend, but I don't believe it's a long-term trend. Hmm. Well, yeah, I, I don't either. And that that certainly that certainly is a concern because for many, I mean, I was talking to the first guest I had on my podcast was Larry King. And, you know, as I said to Larry, I said, you're, you're the living proof that retirement doesn't exist, right. you know, to, to this day, 85 years old, he's hosting a show three times a week and writing a column and traveling around giving speeches. And when Otto Van Bismarck decided that retirement was going to be at age 65, uh, at some point, you know, things have changed so much. And, and, and the whole word retirement, I mean, I, I almost see that word going away. Yeah. And also so many people these days are thinking about and actually doing starting a business in midlife, sometimes for the first time. They're becoming midlife entrepreneurs. One of our writers at Next Avenue, Carrie Hannon, just wrote a really great book called Never Too Old to Get Rich. And she interviewed 20 midlife entrepreneurs around the country to talk to them about not only why they did it, how they did it, what mistakes did they make, uh, and that sort of thing. And I think a lot of people are saying they want to be their own boss. And in some cases, they can't get hired by an employer because of their age. So they'll say, okay, I'll just do it myself. And they're finding that because of the internet and other things, and because they've got contacts, because they've got some savings in some cases, it's not as hard as it used to be to start a business. It's not easy and there's mm-hmm. no guarantee, but it doesn't require you to go into hawk the way you used to in the past. You can at least try it out. Maybe while you're working full-time, you can test it out as a side hustle. Yeah. And, well, I, first of all, I love the idea that, that boomers like us get to side hustle. I, I get very jealous of uh, so many of the millennials and Gen Zers that I, that I know through, through work and other ways that are, you know, got all these really cool side hustles. And my brother actually is a really great example of, of somebody in his mid sixties, I don't like this, in his mid sixties mm-hmm. who has started his own consulting business mm-hmm. and is doing incredibly well mm-hmm. because of all of the years of, of, of contacts and all of his really great work that he had done in the marketing field. And he's using all the new technology with blogging and everything else. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to pick up that book, Never Too Old to Get Rich. That's by, it. Who's it by? by? Kerry, K-E-R-Y Hannon, H-A-N-N-O-N. Okay, I'm going to link to that. I, I I love books like that. So, Well, Richard, thank you so much for taking time today and sharing your vast business journalism experience and sharing what is going on at nextavenue.org. And if you haven't seen it, you need to check it out, and we will certainly link directly for you. Also, some of the specific stories that we talked about today. In my opinion, there is so much great content in this site every single day. And even though I have 32 years under my belt as a financial advisor, I continue to learn from Next Avenue every day. It comes up just like I look at Business Insider and a couple other things. So thank you for that. I'm really, thank you. It's really helpful. I hope everyone is enjoying our first season of Financially Speaking. Remember to follow us on Spotify or through all the UBS links provided. Thank you again to the folks at Resonate Recording down in Bourbon Country in Louisville, Janelle and John especially, for all the post-production work. And remember, 
when it comes to saving for your future, as we said earlier in this show, but I can't emphasize this three words enough. Pay yourself first. Have a great week.